0: It's good to be in the presence of the people of God. I'd love to be in the presence of a diverse people of God. It's just reflective of a gospel that can save to the uttermost. Father, I just want to just slide right into prayer. Ask for your help. That you be seen as high and lifted up, Lord Jesus, reinforce or restore or initiate a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ that will fuel a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ that will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help Cornerstone to know the abundant riches that are theirs in Christ and at the same time let them know the abundant grace that's already been given as evidenced by the resources, the facilities, the human connectivity, uh, the both local and the national uh, witness, people talk about them. Talk about them as though they are favored. Not because this is a mega church, but because this is Messiah's church. Help me to continue in the vein that we've already begun. Edit me, keep me from error. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Whew. I go to a different kind of church. It's very gospel-centered. It's just different. I thank God for my church. But you know how every now and then you go elsewhere and you experience some, maybe some things that you don't necessarily experience in your church or Just like you go to other people's homes and you may see or experience something, you don't in your own home. And uh, I just want to let you know that it is a pleasure to be here. I want to bless the Lord. Uh, Bless the Lord for the pastors uh, that agreed to let this happen. Cornerstone, you don't know me, but I feel connected to you. Um, I feel uh, connected to you through my relationship with Pastor Jono and uh, Pastor Rich and Pastor Mo and uh, even Pastor Bob, who I met today. (laughs) Hey, Bob. There he is. Okay. And uh, I'm already lit. I was in the back with the the men of God, Keith and Pastor Rich, and they already got me going. So I'm sorry. I'm there. But I'm going to set my timer under the allotted amount just in case I go over. Amen? (laughs) All right, all right, all right. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 or turn on and meet me via your device in Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to look at 7 to 13. What I'll do is let's read it together and then we'll unpack it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he be out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And the name, uh, excuse me, uh, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This passage is written to a church in Philadelphia. It always prompts me to say, in West Philadelphia, born and raised, on the playground is where I spent most of my days, chilling out, relaxing, maxing all cool, shooting some b-ball outside of the school, when a couple of guys who were up to no good. Started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight. My mom got scared. She said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. I don't know if they told y'all, but you know, I have some experience with rap. But in all seriousness, it's interesting how that 90s comedy... It's built on a premise that there was someone in Philadelphia that was experiencing trouble in Philadelphia and the remedy was to leave Philadelphia. Our text today is about a church that lives in a city called Philadelphia and there is trouble in Philadelphia. But the remedy is not to leave Philadelphia but the remedy is a faithful God who is committed to the church in Philadelphia, who is able to keep that church while they remain in Philadelphia. This is the book of Revelation. It starts off by showing us a picture of a glorious and exalted Christ who presents himself as with his church. He is the inspector of the church. He is the corrector of the church. Overall, he is the protector of the church. Chapter 1, that's what he shows himself as. And then in chapter 2 and 3, he begins to address his church. Yes, the rest of Revelation is going to eventually show you God's plan for everyone, but judgment starts in the household. God looks at his church and says, well, if the church is not right, then what do you expect about the everyone else? And so what we have here are letters. Seven letters were written to seven churches in these areas And today we're going to look at the sixth letter written to the sixth church, the church at Philadelphia. The context is persecution and God has to let them know that he's able to protect them. So here's the message in a nutshell. The loyal Christ is faithful and able to keep for himself a loyal church. In other words, because he is loyal to you, he is able to ensure that you ultimately will be loyal to him. Brothers and sisters, let's just start off right now by saying this is a good word for today. Let us not think that we can keep ourselves. Let us not think that we can present ourselves faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. This is an era where we're seeing people drift from the faith. Even now, evangelicals are lamenting. Pastors and pastor friends that now say they are not Christians. I don't know if you remember, but Gospel Coalition put out a blog of a man who wrote, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris, who recently posted, I am no longer a Christian. And so people are saying, man, in times like these, we need to know, will God keep us from being the next person who says, I no longer want to be a Christian? Even now, black churches are being impacted by black contingents that are going off to the Hebrew Israelites, believing that the Christians are no longer their religion of choice, but they want to be with the Hebrew Israelites. I have a great number of my family members that have just told me basically that they've changed and their, their understanding of the Bible is different. Their understanding of the people of God is different. And now they have become Hebrew Israelites. I, not just Hebrews, not just Israelites. That's, we understand that. The Hebrew Israelites put it together. One time I wrote a song called Deserter. I sensed that the winds were starting to blow. I said people are starting to drift. Some of them not from the faith, just from faithfulness. Had a own bout in my own life where God had to reel me back. So this is not me being judgmental or throwing stones. I'm just grateful for a God who's able to keep for himself a people loyal to himself simply because he is loyal to that people. I wrote the song, Deserter. I called up a friend of mine. I said, can you do the hook for me? Because he had a nice reggae voice. I said, this is, sounds like it needs a reggae voice, man. <laughs> he penned these words, Deserter, you don't want to be no deserter. I was like, yeah, deserter. Don't want to see your soul get burned up. <laughs> it didn't take but a year for him to be the very deserter that he wrote about. I'm here to tell you that The letter written to the Church of Philadelphia is apropos for this church here in Atlanta. It's apropos for the Christians that are here this morning. Tweet came across the other day of a book called The Dangerous Calling, written by a man by the name of Paul Tripp. Three of the endorsers, three of the five endorsers that are on his book had to leave the ministry or left the ministry. I'm just here to tell you that this word is good for us today. The most experienced climbers fastened themselves to something more secure than themselves. Church today, I just want to talk about the loyal Christ and his loyal church. Philadelphia was a church of the first century, modern day Turkey. It was a small city, but it was a strategic city. It was nicknamed Gateway to the East. It was on a postal route, and so basically, Philadelphia was established not to be a military place, but to be a place that exported or was a missionary of Greek thought and Greek culture. In other words, Philadelphia was that place that dispatched and dispensed Greek culture, Greek thought. Its location was a gift and a curse. It was, it was located on a volcanic plain, which means it had very rich soil it ended up producing great uh, grapes, grapes was their industry, wine was their industry, and yet the very thing that was their benefit was also their burden, because as the, in about 17 AD, there was an earthquake that almost decimated it, and people left, and they were, they were plagued with aftershocks for so long that people did not want to move back, they moved into the outskirts. I'm giving you this as a backdrop because you're going to see that this letter is tailor-made for people who know all about uncertainty, all about blessings and yet burdens, all about coming and going. The Lord Jesus talks to them and he says, I am the God of the comings and the goings. All these letters have a similar outline. It'll be my outline today, but all seven letters basically have this outline. An authoritative introduction. Christ tells them something about himself that's particular to that church. An all-knowing evaluation. He says, I know your works. I know what you did last summer. I know the real. I know the real story. I know where the, where the hair stops and the extensions start. I know the diamond from the cubic zirconia. He says, I know. He will say, I know your works. I know the quality of your works. I know the content of your works. I know the conditions that's affecting your works. This is all of them, an all-knowing evaluation. And he even has to give some a word of correction and some a word of commendation. And then an appropriate exhortation. He tells them how to get it right based on what he's seen. And then an awe-inspiring conclusion. He closes everything off and he climaxes it with, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter was written to one church, but at the end of it he says, Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What he's saying to one church, he's saying to all churches. And so here we are today. We're about to dive into this letter written to the church at Philadelphia. Come with me. First, the authoritative introduction, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Stop right there. The Lord Jesus comes on the scene and presents himself in stunning fashion. First of all, the Holy One. To be holy is to be separate and apart from anything that's unlike God. He's in a class all by himself. You know, there's a man by the name of Kanye. He did an album called Jesus. On it, he says, I'm not the most high, but I'm close by. Well, this text would say, nah, 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 (laughs) nah. He's in a class all by himself. I'm not throwing shade at Kanye. I'm just saying Isaiah 40, 25 says, who then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the holy one. In Isaiah, the Holy One is used 20 times and is exclusive to Yahweh. So when the Lord Jesus comes here in Revelation and says the Holy One, what he's saying is the God Yahweh in the Old Testament, that's Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I'm I'm he. Jesus, he says, I'm the Holy One. In the Gospels, demons would recognize him as the Holy One. In other words, Jesus says, "Know my true identity, I'm not just one of the boys, I'm not just a homeboy, I'm in a class all by myself, I'm the holy one. Secondly, the faithful one or the true one, this could either mean he's genuine, I know there are a lot of so-called messiahs, I'm the true one, or it could be the faithful one, the dependable one, both are true about the Lord Jesus. He describes himself as totally trustworthy and when the volcanic eruptions happen and your life is built on a fault line and everything goes up and down when you have to go out and you come in or when the persecution comes and you see people go left and right, you need somebody who's true. Somebody who's dependable. The Lord Jesus says, let me just tell you the holy one, the true one is here. When these two are brought together, the holy and true one what you're going to see in chapter 6, if you go home and you read ahead, it's together as a title for the Lord. In other words, he is the one who can do it, and he's the one who's dependable, so he always will do it. So when we said, don't give up on God, he won't give up on you, he's able, he's going to do, I said, how appropriate. I guess they looked at the passage and chose that song, because he's able and he will do what he says he will do. Some of you all like Steph Curry, arguably the greatest shooter we've ever seen in the NBA. Interesting stat came up in these last post, this last postseason. Steph Curry is the guy you always want taking the shot. And then they said in the last 20 seconds of the game when the game is on the line, he was an 0 for 8. In other words, the one who normally can last 20 seconds with the game on the line seems to not be able to. This is is no shade on curry, I'm just saying. (laughs) Jesus is morally consistent, and he's powerful enough to do it. He starts a work and he'll finish it, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not from everlasting to the fourth quarter with eight seconds left. You are God. He's a giver of perfect gifts. You can trust him. And then he says this, the one who has the key, right? He says, who has the key of David, who opens, no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. The Lord Jesus could have grabbed the mic and said, I got the key, the key, the key. This is Atlanta, right? Some of y'all are like, what? He has the key, verse 7. He has the key, the key of David. You would have to go into the Old Testament to know. That this basically means that the Lord Jesus is the God of access and opportunity. He's the only one who can give you access to the Davidic kingdom, which is shorthand for the kingdom of God. He's the one who gives you the access. And as a kingdom citizen, he's the God that gives you opportunity. The preachers would say that, that, that promotion doesn't come from the east or to the west or from the west. It comes from above. The key of David. In Isaiah 22, if you, want, if you take notes, just go back and just look at how the, the John uses his Old Testament, his Hebrew Bible, in order to help the believers to understand what he's talking about. In Isaiah 22, Says of a man by the name of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with your robe, bring him your sash, and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, note 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. It just basically means I'm holy, I'm faithful, and I'm sovereign. And you need me. Because when I open, no one can shut. But when I shut, no one can open. If you're not a Christian in here today, we're so glad you're here with us. But there's a misnomer about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a fuzzy little friend. He is a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. But he also has keys and he uses them. I turn your attention to Luke Write it down and look at it when you get home. Luke chapter 13, 24 to 28. He says, strive to enter the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. In other words, He presents himself as the one who gives you access to all that God has, all that you actually need. That's the authoritative introduction. The all-knowing evaluation, the I know your works. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 8, I know your works. There's some controversy as to what this verse really means is it I know your works, parentheses, after all, I opened a door and no one could shut it. Then he gets back. Now, this is what I know about you. I know you have little power, yet you haven't denied my name. Interjected here is this little phrase that says I have what? Put a door. I know your works. I know the kind of works. I know the quality of the works. And I know the conditions. How do I know? Because I put a door. Door is access. I've given you access to me. That's why, I, and I have access to you. That's why I know. What do I know? I know because I put that there. In the Bible, you would look. Some people say the open door is access to service. God gives you effective service. This is the way Paul uses the term. When Paul says in I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door of effective work has been opened to me. In Colossians 4, Paul says this, pray, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ bold like I ought. So some say this is what John is saying. He's saying that God has given this church an open door and they've been walking through it and being effective in their word. But in others say, well, in Revelation, it doesn't seem to be the case. This is an open door of access, meaning this is just God reminded them that he knows their works because he's very close to them because he's brought them in. A door not of service, but of salvation. And contextually, this might be the case because he said, I got the key of David. I bring you into the kingdom. Well, let's not make these two argue. How about he's both? (laughs) He has given them a door of salvation which has then led to their effective service. And so both salvation and service will be my I know. And then he says, I know this. I know you have little power. Oh, can we talk about the believer and the believer who doesn't seem to have it all in this life? I know the power you have and it's not much. I know the weakness you have and it seems apparent to all. I know the lack that you have No one is fooled. I know that you don't have acceptance. I know that you don't have influence. I know that you're a low man on the totem pole in a city where there's mega churches. I know that you seem in comparison to be a mini church. I know you have little power. I know the system can be hard and against you. I know you can feel like the outsider. I know you can feel like the person nobody is asking to come out. I know your platform is not what other people's platform is. I know you have little power. In this church, they had little power. They were a small church. But the Lord says, I know that about you. Sometimes we try to change that. We don't like the weakness that God calls us to. In our faithfulness, we remain small and we say something's got to be wrong. Maybe I need to change the formula because I know people who are faithful and they look big. And so we start tampering. No, this text tells you that you can have little power and yet remain faithful even to the end because he's a loyal God and he's able to keep for himself a loyal Christian and a loyal church. It is he who is loyal In other words, this church was a small church but it had a big God and that's what you have today. Well, he goes on and says, I know you have and if this is true, you put all that we've said together we get keys to being loyal. The loyal church. Faithful to do gospel work the open door to a service. Faithful to obey God's word. He says, you have not You've kept my word and have not denied my name, faithful to a Jesus witness. Let's look at it. Look at it. He says, I know I've opened up a door. The door gives you success when you go out and bear witness, faithful to do gospel work. We told you that Philadelphia, it exported Greek thought. So now the church, instead of going out there and forwarding Greek thought, now has been a church that forwards the gospel. In other words, Atlanta, everybody wants to come to Atlanta because Atlanta is the hot spot. Hot for culture, especially black culture. Hot for affluence, especially black people. You see them successful. There's all kinds of motivations to come, if you're black, to come to Atlanta. And if you're white, to come to Atlanta or to live in Atlanta. But how about coming to Atlanta because Christ is glorious and because Christ is available and because the church is being faithful to him? He says, you ought to come to Philadelphia because Philadelphia, the church there, is actually walking through the door and giving the word. Oh, Instead of, in light of their small opportunity, they still continue to forward the gospel. If you're really a faithful and a loyal, you find opportunities even where there seem to be none. When I was growing up, there was a commercial, a Tootsie Roll commercial. The kid used to say, wherever it is I think I see becomes a Tootsie Roll to me. And it was a bird, and it was a Tootsie Roll bird. And it was a tree, it was a Tootsie Roll tree. And it was a street light, and it was a Tootsie Roll. And the clouds was a Tootsie Roll, and the sun was a Tootsie Roll. He said, I see opportunity, just like that kid sees Tootsie Rolls. You go to work, and it looks like a cubicle, but it looks like a gospel roll, You go to the store, and it looks like a checkout aisle, but you see gospel opportunities. You go to the doctor, and it looks like it's just a checkup, but it's a gospel opportunity. You move on the block, and it looks like just a way to have a home, but it's now a gospel opportunity. He says, I know your works. You've been effective in seeking out and seeing gospel opportunities and taking advantage of it. A faithful church is faithful in gospel work. Not only that, he says, you have not denied my, you kept my word, excuse me, yet you have kept my word. A faithful church obeys God's word. I like the way obedience affects gospel work. In Titus, this is what the scripture says. The way a young woman relates to her husband affects the gospel. Watch this. Young women... Love your husbands, your children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. See how he puts that together? The way you act at home affects the way the word is either honored or reviled. She's like, like, moving on. Well, let me get to the young men. Younger men, show yourself in all aspects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. It says the way your young men, the way they walk the block, the way they uh, live lives of integrity. Keep people from blaming the church for things. Keep people from blaming Jesus for things men are like all right keep going how about people at the lowest end of the totem pole bond servants bond servants be well pleasing not argumentative not pilfering but showing all good faith why so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of god our savior He says the way you go to work and play the low the way you get on a team and work your way up The way you go to a business and you're humble. The way you go wherever you go and play the low. He says there's a way you do that that adorns the doctrine. He says a loyal church is faithful in gospel work. A loyal church is faithful to obey God's word because it it affects. But then lastly, faithful in being Jesus' witness. He says, you didn't deny my name. He says, you kept my word and you didn't deny my name. Whose name? This is Jesus's name. You know that people don't mind denying. Uh, G- people will deny Jesus and think that they, they can have God. What we, what we have a problem with is Jesus. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, you didn't deny my name, Jesus. That was the name that got you in trouble in this context. Again, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. So it got you in trouble with the Jews, which we'll see later. Got you in trouble with Rome because they said Caesar is Lord. And so whether it's Caesar or whether it's the Jew, he says, no, no, no. You still won't deny Jesus. And that's where the problem lies. How many people stop getting Jesus centered because they'll just let me say God? I'm not going to be Christ's. I'll just be spiritual. He says, let me tell you, if you're loyal, you remain faithful To Jesus and his name. This is biblical proof that you can't just get deistic. You can't get just theistic. You must be Christocentric. This is what a loyal church is. You see it. He says, I know your works. He says, I put a door. You've been walking through it. Gospel work. You haven't disobeyed me. He says, witness, work, faithfulness to me. In other words, the Lord church is faithful in work, word, and witness. Well, now the appropriate exhortation, and this comes in the form of promises nine to eleven. He gives us some promises. Some people they say, "God promised me that I'm gonna have a business." Some people say, "God promised me that this is my year." I can't affirm those promises because I don't know. But I'm about to give you some promises that every believer can bank on. It's right here behold verse 9 first is the promise of ultimate vindication ultimate vindication behold i will make those of the synagogue of satan who say that they are jews and are not but lie behold i will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that i have loved you i will make is the first thing this is not one day people are going to recognize that's passive this is i will make it happen God promises his people, don't worry. I know they see you as small. I know they see you as uh, 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 without influence. I see you. But he says, don't worry. I'm going to make it so they will see you exalted. They will see your relationship to me. He says, I will make. This lamb is also a lion. He does what he wills. The prince of peace one day will show people that he's also the lord of armies. Jesus, savior. Savior. It's also the judge with a gavel. And so he says, I'm going to make this happen. Remember, holy, I got the keys, the keys, the keys. But then he says, and I'm going to make those of the synagogue of Satan. This is probably a Jewish group that looked at Jewish Christians who began to fellowship with Christians. They fell out of favor with the synagogue, the Jews of this era area. And so then they started leaving them out and putting them out of the synagogue. The synagogue had more than just spiritual uh, repercussions. It had social. So you would go to the synagogue like I'm not coming to the synagogue like you all are here. I'm coming because my friends are still here. My family is still here. They still open in Torah and they rally around Torah. We understand it in the light of Christ, but I still can go to the the temple. I still can go to the synagogues. They were putting them out. And then they began to persecute the Christians, particularly Jewish Christians. He says, now they think they're the real Jews, but they're not. Look what he says. They think they're the Jews, but they lie. They lie. They're not the real Jews. And he says, they, their synagogue, which just means gathering, their synagogue is the synagogue of Satan. They say they're the Jews, but they lie. I will make them come and bow down to your feet, and they will realize that they're not the beloved. You are the beloved. This is vindication. You remember what the New Testament says about who real Jews are? Romans two twenty eight to 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Oh, they keep coming to us, and they saying, come on, you don't even realize that you're really a Hebrew, and they just say that because I'm black. They yell at white people and say, they're the devil. You're an Edomite. You're not his. Bible says, well, he is the real Jew the one who God has made one. Look at Romans 9, 6 to 7. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. John 8. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. You seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In other words, if you were truly... Israel you would rejoice in Jesus as Messiah and you would love his people regardless of whether or not they come from Abraham's line you would love them because they are actually Abraham's children because the spirit has made it so he says one day it's going to happen now the Jews used to look forward to the day when all the Gentiles acknowledged that they had the upper hand watch this Isaiah 45 14 Isaiah if you're taking notes look at it when you go home Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides them. You see, they were waiting for the day. Yeah, I can't wait to Egypt and Cush and the Sabians come and bow down. Isaiah 49, same thing. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Israel was like, yeah, can't wait till the kings are ours and the, and the queens are ours. And they bow down. This is what they were anticipating. All oh, the great switcheroo happens. Isaiah 60, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. This is what Israel was waiting for. And now here, the Lord Jesus tells many Gentiles who become Christians, many Jews who become Christ followers, he tells them, I will make them bow down to you. I will make them see that I love you. You ever see somebody with their person and say, man, now how, did, how did he get her? <laughs> and you're like, man, no, power to him. Huh? Right on, brother. <laughs> when they see the church with the Lord Jesus, it's like, how did you get him? Yeah. And we say, he has done this marvelous thing. Yeah. He says, I'm going to make people marvel at the fact that Christ and his church are a couple. And if you are in Christ, that's who he's talking to. So when the Hebrew Israelites come and they try to make you feel like, A, you either have to be from Abraham's descendant, or B, they look at somebody and try to keep them out, say that's the synagogue of Satan. Because one day God will vindicate, ultimately, he will show people that we really are his people. Not because of our physical birth, but because of our spiritual birth in Christ. He says, and they will learn that I love you. And then he promises not just vindication, but preservation. Look at 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, because you kept my word, I'm going to keep you. Oh, this is a great Christian principle. He says, you kept my word about patient endurance. What Jesus prepares us for is not a sprint, but a marathon. He says, you're going to have to persevere to the end. The one who endures to the end shall be saved. Well, you don't persevere to save yourself, but anyone who has been saved will persevere. And so your commitment will not be in vain. In other words, what he's saying is all the striving is not in vain. Because you kept my word, I will keep you. You know, this is what we call Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Your keeping is because you're being kept. If you had a kid and you were saying, Hold my hand as we walk across the street, it's not like I told you to hold my hand, that's why you got hit by a car. You would hold them. That doesn't mean that you don't tell them to hold on. So you hold on. Human responsibility, keep my word. And yet, divine sovereignty, I will keep you. This is good. I will keep you. And what? I will keep you. I will preserve you. I will protect you. He says, I'm going to keep you. He says, there's an hour of trial, not just a, but the hour of trial that's coming on the world. Now, certain schools you go to will teach you that this means that you will be raptured and removed from the great tribulation that is to come. Many people believe that. But it has also been noted that that might not be the best way to understand this removal from or this way to be saved from the hour of trial. Why? Because in John 17, the only other place where we see the same construction being saved from, the Lord Jesus says, protect them in. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. It's there that he says you'll be in the midst of the evil one, but you'll be protected in the midst of the evil one. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that there's another way to look at it. The Hebrew boys were saved in the fire. Daniel was saved in the lion's den. Israel had, was saved in Goshen with, every, with all hell breaking loose around them. He says this is a cataclysmic trial that's coming to test unbelievers, the question is, will we be saved from the fire by being removed or kept in it? Well, the letter seems to say that he will protect us even in it. Not only that, vindication, protection, and preservation, and a visitation. Look what he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I am coming, present tense. Jesus is actually coming back, y'all. We're not going to just always be thinking on the days when Jesus was here. He's coming. That is the promise of the believer. And it's, it's given to people for two reasons. To warm the believer, I am coming. To give you hope. But it's also to warn the unbeliever, I am coming. It's, a, it's one event, but it has two different effects. Again, if you're a robber and you hear the cops coming, that's uh uh-oh. If you're being robbed and you hear the cops coming, you're like, there we go. Lord willing, usually. He says, hold fast. Hold fast. He says, hold fast. There's a song, he will hold me fast. Yet the scriptures tells us to hold fast. In Jude, it says, keep yourself in the love of God. And then at the end, it says, now to him who's able to keep you from falling. Church, I just want to say that you and I must hold fast. But I just want to say that He is faithful to hold and keep us. Well, let's get to the awe inspiring conclusion. The one who conquers, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He says, this is how we'll end. I promise you, you're going to get vindication. They'll bow down to you and they'll realize you were the true church. He says, I promise you that I'm going to preserve you and keep you as the fire intensifies on earth. As the persecution gets more and more, I'm going to keep you and preserve you. And I promise that one day I will visit you. I will actually come down. That's his way of saying, I'm coming back for you. And now he says, and if you will hold fast, he says, you will experience the day when I demonstrate the people I claimed you. You know what happens when you write your name on something, right? That's your way of saying that's mine. You ever be in a room full of water bottles? And you're like, I'm just letting everybody know I'm putting my name on mine. You know, there's something called name it and claim it, right? If you name it, you claimed it, right? This is true name it and claim it. God says, I'm going to write my name on them, and that means I claim them. Oh, don't get it twisted. The Lord Jesus looks at the earth and he doesn't, he only has a one people that's his per, personal possession. This is just another way to say that Jesus sees you as not just his creation, but his child. That he didn't just make you, but he also redeemed you. He says, I will make them. I'll make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Listen, this idea of being a pillar. What happened was in this culture, they were used to buildings crumbling And certain things would, again, crumble and certain things would remain. Often, if you go see ruins today, one of the things that still remains are the pillars. This is a way of him saying, I will make sure that you stand fast. You will be a pillar in the temple of my God. Not only that, he says, he shall never go out of it. (laughs) Right? Well, you remember, they all left Philadelphia because of the earthquakes. And they were scared to come back because of the aftershocks. He says, you will be secure. This is God's way of saying, I will make you secure in the temple of my God, secure in my presence. The temple was where God's presence was. Christians who endure will receive a secure position in the presence of God. They will be his possession. This three-layer name. Basically identifies you with God, with his heavenly city, and with the one who made it all possible. Jesus says, even I have a new name. At the end of Revelation, it says there's a name that he has that no one knows. And we will have that on us. In other words, you will be mine, absolutely mine, no doubt about it. It's this good news to anyone. In a world where people will often measure your success by your size, Measure it by your influence. Measure it by your significance. We may not have size, status, or stature, but the Bible says one day they will see that you are securely in me, and you are mine, and I am yours. I'm going to give you a new name, and people will associate you with me, the living and resurrected Christ. You know, when, they, when uh, Philadelphia was almost decimated, the emperor Tiberius basically financed it to be rebuilt and they named it Neo-Caesar. The city became known as Neo-Caesar. It didn't stick but Philadelphia knew it's something about when the the emperor or the authority is good to you, you name it the names sort of go together. He says Jesus Christ will be the one and we'll have his name. Conclusion, cornerstone the one who was and is and is to come sets his affections on people. He does it simply because he is the Lord of the church. He comes on the scene and he says, this is one of only two churches he has no correction for. Philadelphia is a favorite church. He doesn't say one word of rebuke, one word of correction to them. This and Smyrna, they're the only two churches. He says nothing is wrong. All he tells them is to continue to hold fast and do what you've been doing. I just thought I'd come by to tell you that, Cornerstone, God's hand is on your life. Doesn't mean that there are no problems, it just means that he's committed to you. And I just came by to say that Jesus Christ says, the one who remains faithful to me, faithful to do my work, faithful to advance my cause, faithful to the name of Jesus in particular, That he will keep you. That he'll vindicate you one day. Show people that you're his main squeeze. That he'll visit you, come back, and take you so that you'll forever be with him in security. Is that good to you today? There's a song that says... Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, Daily, I'm constrained to be. And then it says this, let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Why? Prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's you and I, aren't we? Prone? Here's my heart take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. There was a black minister back in the 19th century about 1890. I'm going to close with his words. For 4,000 years At least the world had no Bible, no church, no preacher, according to our understanding of the term, no weekly religious services. Yet, according to the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, God had Christians before Christianity. And the grace of God kept them in all their trials, and today they are redeemed around the throne of God. Of the 12 apostles, according to tradition, only one died a natural death, yet all except the son of perdition died Christians. Look for a moment at post-apostolic ages. There is hardly an acre of ground in Europe that has not been bedewed with the blood of God's saints. Many of the prisons, blocks, and stakes are eloquent monuments of the power of God in preserving the souls of his people. They were made lampposts for Rome, yet they remained firm to the end and preached their loudest sermons by their persevering attachment to their Lord and Master. When they were burned at the stake, their ashes were carried by the providential winds, and wherever a grain dropped, a church of the living God sprang up. Their dying shouts were carried far and near, and men soon learned that it was the planting of God's hand and could not be pulled up. Now we ask if Christians have stood greater trials than we are having, with less advantages than we have, And God enabled them to be faithful to the end. Is it unfair for us to believe that the same grace that Christians in the days of Abel, Noah, David, Paul, Luther, that that will keep us? It's not fair, unfair at all. He will hold you fast. Trust Christ today, saints. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, so much tricky language in that text. Almost feels cumbersome trying to unpack it, but the overarching theme screams loud and clear that you are holy, you are true, you know our condition, you know the things that plague us, and you have pledged that you will vindicate us you will show people that you have loved us in spite of what the smallness on earth may have seen, smallness in our number seen, smallness in power seems. You will show us that you protect us and you'll preserve us because as you light the fire on this world to show people what really is, you will keep us no matter how intense the flames get. And then you're coming back and when you come back, you're not just coming back, you're coming back for a people And we will be securely with you as that, people. All of these things are good news. And all you're telling us to do is to hold fast. Not by our own might, but because you have given us great promises. Father, be with your people. Help them to embrace these truths as good news. We pray it in Jesus' name.